Genesis 1 and Young Earth Creationism. We're back at it, dealing with questions around Genesis 1. Uh, here I'm going to be uh, reading through a post that I had made quite some time ago responding to uh, a gentleman named Steve Schramm. Now, Steve is a really good friend of mine. He's actually a fellow mentionable with me over at the Mentionables um, and, and a really great guy. Uh, has a great uh, podcast uh, and ministry uh, that that I that I really really appreciate. But Steve and I disagree on some things. And uh, when I originally posted the blog article that then became the episode that's in this playlist about responses to young earth creationism, Steve, as a young earth a young earth uh, creationist uh, or a young earth age uh, uh, proponent, uh, responded to that article. And so I want to read through uh, my response or my rejoinders to his objections. The format of this is going to be a little bit different because I'm going to have to say what the original comment was, his objection to it, and my response to it. So I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can on what I'm what I'm talking to. But first, I'd like to thank Steve for the engagement with that article dealing with the issues surrounding Young Earth Creationism and Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and how they're commonly discussed in Christian debates. His article was one of the first substantive engagements with any of my work on Genesis 1 from the Young Earth Creationist side that sought to actually engage with concepts and arguments. Steve's article, while po uh, pointed, was overall charitable and, and thorough and, and, and throughout, and, and Steve himself appears to at least desire to give the most accurate treatment of my views as possible. While I'm going to show where he does at times misunderstand my view or argument, and I think sometimes make some some mistakes, I don't think it's it's you know intentional or due to any lack of effort to give the most fair treatment possible by Steve. Sadly, disclaimer, disclaimers like this and like the one that lead uh, uh, Steve's own article should not be necessary. But given the often contentious nature of these debates. I find it necessary to praise the virtues that Steve exhibits and pray more young earth creationists would follow suit. And note that while some of my comments will be very pointed, I don't mean any of them as an attack on Steve personally. He's probably actually one of the nicest guys that I've ever met. So uh, none of this is meant as a slight on Steve or his character or intellectual honesty or anything like that. Even though, again, sometimes I'm going to say I think he misrepresents some things or mishandles some things or makes some false accusations. So the article that Steve is responding to was my article entitled Responses to Young Earth Creationism. Uh, I'll put that link as well as his article in the notes below. Now, this article was meant to be a quick, almost bullet point style of some of the more common young earth creationist arguments for their view. It wasn't meant to be an exhaustive article, and it was part of a general series of Genesis 1 through 1, 1 through 2, 3 that I was producing on the Freed Thinker podcast. Some of the confusion from Steve's article could have been cleared up by reviewing the entire corpus of my work on the issue up to that point, and I think a lot of that I've cleared up even after that with, with further work that I've done. 
Steve appears to like to get up into the details, and so do I. This means that his response to my article was extensive, and my rejoinder is going to be as well. As I told Steve, this exchange is going to get a bit wordy, but as I like to say, brevity may be the soul of wit, but verbosity is the soul of getting one's point the hell across. And Steve and I both seem to like making our points as clear as possible. To that effect, I'd like to start with a distinction that I think is helpful. This is the distinction between young earth creationism, which is the view that the earth is young, usually dated somewhere between 6,000 and 12,000 years old, and the position on a calendar day or a literal day view of Genesis 1. 24-hour day, literal day, calendar day, anything like that uh, typically uh, is, is a name for the same thing. Now, that view is a concordist view and holds that the creation account in Genesis presents an actual successive series of seven literal 24-hour days in which God created all things. This distinction between young earth creationism and the literal or calendar day view is helpful as one may hold to one without necessarily holding to the other. And yet the term young earth creationism is con commonly conflated with the calendar day view. Now, 99% of the time, a person who holds one will almost certainly hold to the other, but we should keep these concepts distinct. As we'll see, arguments for one may not qualify as arguments for the other. The same for the objection against them as well. So. Steve starts his article by basically saying that while I profess to take no view on the age of the earth, that the earth does have an age. He spends quite some time on this point. Well, at least devotes a relatively large amount of space to it for an online blog post. Since he spends so much of his time on this, I would be remiss if I didn't address it at all. But if I'm being honest, I found this section of little value. Why? Because it's trivially true that the earth does have an age. I agree. Of course it does. The earth has existed for a specific amount of time. However, the reason I said I have no dog in that fight is because I think the age of the earth is just utterly irrelevant to the Bible and to Christianity. Since my view of Genesis 1 is that it's a highly stylized literary framework used to form a polemical temple text against the gods of Egypt and possibly after some redactional activity in later cultures uh, to their deities as well, given one's view of the redactional activity again, it means that the first creation account is simply not giving us a diachronic or literal presentation of material creation. The age of the earth then just becomes a trivial question in terms of biblical Christianity. In the same realm as how many moons orbit Jupiter or how species of bees, how many species of bees there are. If my understanding of Genesis 1 is correct, then the earth could be 6,000, 10,000, 1 million or 4.5 billion years old, and that would be a scientific question alone, not a biblical one. Scientifically, it would be interesting to be sure, but nothing to get into heated Bible debates over that often end in anathemas of each other. Steve grants this point when he writes, quote, with that in mind, strictly speaking, there are only two options. And the reality is that one can affirm the views that Tyler holds about the authorial intent of Genesis and hold either young earth creationism, old earth creationism, or theistic evolution, end quote. That's correct. Since these matters are of material origins and not spoken of in Genesis, according to my view, then the text is not determinative between these views. However, Steve adds, quote, 
In my view, there are pretty insurmountable scriptural issues in accepting old age chronology, end quote. The reason for this, he says, is that because my view does not address these issues, then my comments have, quote, zilch to do with the age of the earth, end quote. Here, the distinction I made previously will not be vitally important as well as well understanding the intent of the article I originally wrote. This article is dealing with young earth creationist arguments used in an attempt to prove that the earth is young and that the Bible teaches that. Thus, part of the problem that I'm, di that I'm driving at is precisely the conflation of the two theories of young earth creationism and a calendar day view of Genesis 1. In addition, I'm offering objections to these arguments, not making arguments or presenting evidence for my own view. This means that I'm not attempting to make a positive case for my view in Genesis 1 in that article, but rather was showing why the arguments put forth by those in the Young Earth Creationist camp, typified usually by those at groups like Answers in Genesis and Creation.com, fail to demonstrate what they would like them to. Now, Steve, in his response, followed the same numbering pattern of my original article, and I'll continue to do the same here. So, the number, and these, when I say number one and then the title, that's going to be the argument given by the young earth creationists like those at uh, Answers in Genesis. So, number one, old earth creationists are intimidated by secular scientists, and so they reject what they know the text says. Okay. Here, Steve simply protests that he's not aware of any such arguments put forward by any proponents of young earth creationists. This could be refuted a million times over anecdotally by anyone who rejects young earth creationists in their churches these days, or in blogs, or online forums, Facebook groups, whatever. However, we can go beyond this. While I could give numerous examples, such as my debate with my friend Jason Mullet, uh, available uh, on my podcast and then also linked in the Genesis playlist on the YouTube, I can link a talk given by Gary North on the framework model, but I can actually do better than that. He seems to put a lot of citations from Answers in Genesis and mentions Jason Lyle. This has actually been one of my major and repeated complaints against Dr. Lyle, that he accuses people who deny young earth creationism as being intimidated and influenced by, quote, secular science. He does it so in his lecture entitled Creation Evangelism, a title that should be wildly problematic to any who think Christ alone saves and that one's view of creationism has taken far too much attention away from that effort already, as well as in his article where he responds to Norman Geisler on similar issues, in which he writes, quote, it could well be that many Christians are reluctant to accept the literal words of Genesis because they're intimidated by secular scientists. And then he cites a Bible verse, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. Proverbs 29, 25, end quote. Now, I could give countless more examples from Lyle, Ham and his affiliates, Sarfati, Comfort, Morris, and so forth, but let this suffice to get Steve started down the line. Now, most people who reject Young Earth creationism will not directly encounter the thought leaders of the Young Earth creationist movement, but people who mass consume their work and often uncritically parrot what they hear. The thought that the reason someone would reject Young Earth creationism is because they have been duped into believing the secularist lie of evolution is so pervasive an experience to anyone outside the Young Earth creationist camp that I have a pretty hard time thinking that Steve is entirely unaware of it. While the sins of the minions may not always go back to the brain trust, so to speak, 
Surely in this case of young earth creationism, this manner of rhetoric has been publicly, repeatedly, and loudly championed throughout the years. Anyone who denies young earth creationism is considered a liberal and is suspected or flat out accused of giving up on inspiration and inerrancy. Even the quote from Jensen, which uh, I'm going to say Jensen because that's how it's spelled. It could be Johnson, just spelled weird, but I'm going to say Jensen. This quote that from Jensen that Steve himself provides is problematic. It assumes that non-Christians are wrong on the age of the earth and because of Romans 1, this is because of spiritual reasons. Thus, when we helpless babes who went through public school were, of course, indoctrinated into this non-Christian view, well, stop the vote there. Imagine if Genesis 1 isn't telling us that the world is young, and as such, it's not the biblical or the Christian position that the earth is young. Let's just argue for the sake of argument that young earth creationists might be wrong. What then? What if the earth is in fact old and the young earth creationist is simply mistaken? Are the non-Christians then right because of their spiritual blindness? I mean, surely that would not be the position that Steve would affirm, even if Jensen might be right. Jensen then goes on to say that many of us are just ignorant of literature. We don't read enough. Specifically, Jensen is concerned that those who disagree with him do not read enough of what the Answers in Genesis folks have written. He writes, quote, they are clueless about anything scholarly that we've written. I'll ask them, name the last Young Earth Creationist scholarly book you've read. The response, I don't know. Have you read Coming to Grips with Genesis? No. Have you read Earth's Catastrophic Past? No. So why don't more people accept this? Because they're totally ignorant of what we've printed and they don't want to consider it. End quote. Okay, time out, red flag, numerous flags on the field. First, there's not much scholarly material coming out of Answers in Genesis. I'm sorry. Usually it's people working well outside of their fields, if they have advanced degrees at all. None of it, to my knowledge, is ever peer-reviewed. And they're not working in academic institutions in their discipline about which they're writing. This often amounts to little more than non-experts writing in an echo chamber. Jensen mentions an example of coming to grips with Genesis that was written by Terry Mortensen, who does have a PhD in the history of geology. But what makes him an Old Testament scholar dealing with the text of Genesis and its historical backgrounds is beyond me. Now, this doesn't mean that what he writes is false, but merely that if the folks at Answers in Genesis would like to be viewed as scholarly, they should publish along the, the standards of scholarly guidelines. This kind of rhetorical bait and switch from Answers in Genesis actually makes them look less reputable, not more. In addition, it's not a compelling kind of argument because it's so easily falsifiable by many of us who have read their publications. For me, I've read much of their treatment of the biblical text, but I care very little to read the science because it's just outside my discipline and irrelevant to what I think the scriptural text means. Or the argument could cut both ways. If you could say that a view itself is problematic due to the ignorance of opposing views by its adherents fueled by their lack of research into the publications by the opposing views, 
We could easily find more examples among young Earth creationists that have not read the most academic and scholarly works put out by old Earth creationists, theistic evolutionists, day-age views, framework views, those who hold to some type of polemical or temple text view, uh, like myself or Walton or Currid or a whole host of other scholars. In fact, the most common response I've gotten to my paper dealing with Genesis 1 from Young Earth Creationists is ardent refusal to even read it because it's, quote, liberal and accepts science over the Bible. Anyone who's read the paper or listened to this series knows it's nothing of the sort, but I think more people have positively refused to read it than have read it, at least in part. So if Jensen, and by extension Steve who quotes him, thinks that that's a good criticism by the young earth creationists, well, then that scalpel just cuts far deeper backwards on them. In fact, Steve himself seems to not even be able to hide this overall tendency in himself. He can't refrain from making this comment. He writes in his article, quote, For example, I have personally had numerous interactions with Christians who are now convinced that the earth and the universe are billions of years old, but who admitted that they used to hold to a young age view based on the text. What changed? The Bible hasn't. End quote. For Steve, why have these people changed their views? Well, they've capitulated to the changing thing, that is, the changing science, which is clearly the inference that Steve wants us to draw. The problem is that if someone thinks that they were wrong about Genesis 1 being literal and the scientific account in the first place, then they may be able to go and look at the scientific evidence outside of the young earth creationist echo chamber. Or maybe they have something like their own Copernican revolution where they are so convinced by the evidence for the old earth that they hold it more strongly than they do their belief that Genesis 1 teaches a young earth. And so they move to things like gap theory or day age or non-concordist views like mine. Notice that Steve can here only give the singular option that it is changing science as opposed to the unchangeable word of God that must be to blame. This kind of framing of the issue is indicative of the very issue that I was addressing in the first question. While much more can be said, I think most of my comments would suffice to answer the rest of Steve's comments here regarding the rhetorical point, except that he seems to think that when I mention young earth, uh, young earth creationist literalism, that I'm referring to some kind of hyper-literalism, which simply isn't the case. While I think it's too literal beyond what the text demands or even allows, I do not think that young earth creationists are guilty of hyper-literalism on par with people who think that Jesus was literally a wooden door. He points out that much of my view is based on the work of John Walton, which is true enough, I heavily rely on him. Steve seems to think that that's a valid objection uh, is that other, sorry, Steve seems to think that a valid objection is then that other Old Testament scholars disagree with Walton, such as he, who he lists, John Oswald. Okay, sure. That's just trivially true. Yes, scholars disagree on the meaning and interpretation of Genesis 1 in the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds. Once again, this point's so trivially true that I'm just not sure what the point is. I could equally point out that the numerous scholars who object to Oswald's view of Genesis 1. In fact, the great irony is that Steve himself would almost certainly object to Oswald's, Oswald's own views since Oswald takes Genesis 1 to be a historic fact presented in poetry and illusion. 
he flat out rejects that it's a historical narrative, which I'm pretty sure is Steve's view. So it's just a weird point to say that one position is problematic because people disagree with it. When the person that Steve cites is someone that he would almost certainly disagree with on a fundamental level. He then says that I use rhetorically charged terms like glass dome called the firmament and literal pillars when I'm describing features of Genesis, but that I don't allow my readers the chance to evaluate the difference between narrative and poetic language or somehow assume the hyper-literalist view of the young earth creationists. Here, uh, that couldn't, just couldn't be further from the truth. Not only do I expect my readers and listeners to be responsible and go read the text for themselves, but this also has the problem of many young earth creationists that who are non-literal when it's convenient to do so. So they say we should read it literally, except for the, the clauses and the, and the statements that they don't want to. The glass-like dome firmament is found in Genesis 1. Steve needs to decide what to do with that. We know from history and from other texts in the Bible that the firmament is viewed as a solid molten glass dome that keeps the waters above from the waters below and in which the heavenly bodies move across the sky. That's just a simple fact of ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Steve would need to show that either we are wrong in how we assess those views of ancient Near Eastern cosmology or that the Bible means something else by it without giving any indication that it means something else by it than all of their other ancient Near Eastern counterparts, or, and as appears to be Steve's strategy here, simply to say that it's symbolism. Well, there are two problems with that final view. First, why is the firmament in Genesis 1 symbolic, but nothing else is? And what tells Steve that that one thing is symbolic, but the rest of it isn't? besides the need to escape the objection, which would be entirely ad hoc. And if it is symbolic, what's it symbolic for? This is the same for the pillars found in nearly all other creation accounts in Psalms, Job, the prophets, and elsewhere. Imagine that they're all poetic and symbolic. What are they symbolic of? You see, it's not enough just to say, well, that's symbolic. That doesn't get rid of the problem that symbols have concrete concepts behind them. So what is the concrete concept behind the firmament? A glass-like dome that keeps the waters above from the waters below and houses the luminaries. How is the symbolic claim any better? Okay, number two argument from Young Earth Creationist that I was responding to. If you take the plain meaning of the text, it clearly means six literal solar days. Okay, let's again start by stating the intention of my answer, which I gave in the article. In this case, it's that young earth creationists cannot simply beg the question of what they find the plain meaning to be. Many of us simply don't think the plain meaning that they think is plain to be very, well, plain. In fact, many of us find that when we try to read the plain literal meaning, often with a concordance assumption, that it raises more problems than it solves. Thus, the thrust of my response what they, uh, is that when they call the plain meaning, it's similar to when one Christian view among uh, many calls themselves the biblical view. 
It's just condescending and question begging as to be borderline dishonest unless you're willing to defend with proper hermeneutics and exegesis your view. You can't just rely and say, well, my view just is the plain view and therefore it's the true view. That's not how it works. Steve wants us to keep two things in mind, that I appear to assume some current scientific understanding and that I'm trying to separate Genesis 1 from the plain meaning hermeneutic of the entire Bible. We'll see why both of these fail as criticisms. Now, I'm going to bullet point these out, his comments and my responses. Um, and it's going to kind of get into like, this is where it's a little complicated because it's going to be like three layers of, of, of my blog post that gets his objection and then my rejoinder to that objection. So it's going to be uh, my objection to the original Young Earth creationist argument, Steve's protestation to that, and then my rejoinder to Steve. Okay, first, my statement. How is there morning and evening without the sun? Steve answers, you only need light source, not necessarily the sun. My response to that. Well, in day four, God says that the sun was the basis for the day. If God defines a day as needing a sun, who is Steve to disagree? Steve could answer, God created the first light. My rejoinder, incorrect. The Hebrew is very clear that God separated the definite article, the light, from the definite article, the darkness. There are, these are not abstractions of a light or light generally on day one and another light or another general light or a specific light on day four. This is referring to a single concept, a single definite article, the light that shines upon the earth marking out daytime. This is an exegetical point nearly all young earth creationists miss because they need to posit two light sources to make their literal calendar day view uh, map onto the text in any kind of meaningful way. Me, is this supernatural light good? And if so, why did God scrap it and replace it just a few days later with the sun? Steve, I'm not aware of any recent creationist who claims that the first light was supernatural. Me, the supernatural thesis, which includes the light emanating from God or from some singular light abstraction maintained by God, is honestly one of the only answers I ever hear from current young earth creationists to be consistent. Some have tried to argue that it could be light generally around the universe, but then that would not answer the issue of the daylight on the first day above, since for that, we would need a fixed, relatively close, singular light source and not just all ultraviolet light in the universe, for example, so that you have the separation of day from night. So what we get is that this is a temporary light that lasted three days as the majority view. Steve, what's wrong with it being supernatural? Me, nothing. I agree creation is a supernatural process. I never said supernatural wasn't allowed, though in Genesis 2-4, God himself says he uses natural processes. But this doesn't answer how God could make it, call it good, then scrap it and replace it three days later. Steve, but that's just the plain meaning. Me, yeah, and that's the problem, since that is a tension for the plain meaning that is clearly not resolvable. Steve, there are numerous options for what the light could be. It could be God was light. By the way, I'm going to stop here. I didn't point this out. Notice he originally said he's not aware of anyone that makes the supernatural claim that God is a light. But when pushed, his first resource is to say, well, it could be God was light. 
Okay, back to it. Me. No, it was created. It says God created the light and spoke it into existence. God is not the light. Steve, light could have been a form of energy. Again, notice he's going to the other one that I said, which was common that he wasn't, they said he wasn't aware of, which is that gets this ubiquitous, it's just kind of all the UV light that happens in the, in, in, in the universe. Me, sure, but why create it for this purpose, call it good, then replace it by something else to serve the same purpose three days later? Steve, God could have attached the light to the sun. Me, I have no idea what that even means. Plus, besides the myriad of conceptual problems that that would have, such as a light without a light source, see the supernatural view above, which he says no one affirms, but ironically two out of three of his options that he's given are just that view, it also doesn't solve the objection above uh, about why God would create it for a purpose, call it good, then scrap it and replace it with something else three days later for the same purpose within the creation week. Steve, these are no more speculative for the origins of the sun than naturalistic ones. Me, I never said that it wasn't, but I could also easily disagree on my view. Steve is inventing whole cloth ideas of material origins not in the Bible, while scientific views of the origins of the stars are potentially empirically verifiable, which shouldn't matter if Genesis 1 is not a competing narrative in material details, which I don't think it is. Steve, it doesn't make sense to side with naturalists on some points and not others. Me, I'm not, actu I'm not actually doing that and I didn't make that case, but it shouldn't matter either. I side with naturalists on the benefits of brushing my teeth, but not on their view of moral foundations. This seems like an argument from guilt by association. Must I side with Christians against naturalists on everything about origins, even if I think the Christians are getting something wrong? The next, the next point. Me, how are there days when God says the whole purpose of the sun and the moon and stars was for the purpose of marking out days and seasons in day four? Steve, because evening and morning had already taken place. Me, but this begs the question of the calendar today and assumes the very answer trying to be given. Steve, the Hebrew of Genesis 1-5 could be rendered, quote, and the evening and the morning were day one, end quote. Me. Without going into really boring details, that would be highly unlikely to the Hebrew. Steve, God intends to communicate what the readers could understand, and that would be literal days. Again, uh, me, again, this would simply be to beg the question of the, what the plain and clear meaning of the passage would be. Myself and others have argued that this would be almost instantly recognizable to the ancient Near Eastern readers as a temple text. So what was plain to them is probably not what is plain to us in a, in a reading in English from a scientifically minded modern worldview. Steve, a day is possible with no sun, signs and seasons, so any light source and rotation will do. Me, first, see above about the light source. Without that answer now nailed down, this one cannot get off the ground. Plus, the issue again is that God himself said and defined that the whole purpose of the sun was precisely to establish days. That's why he created the sun, was to establish days. Imagine that I argued that marriage existed before Adam and Eve. 
and said, sure, God expressly created Adam and Eve to establish marriage, but he had marriage around before that. Steve would roll his eyes at me, and rightly so, and yet this is the argument that he's making here. Okay, the next one, me. The light and the darkness are separated on day one, but then God creates the sun and the moon for the purpose of separating the light from the darkness on day four. But if that had already happened on day one, then what light and what darkness are being separated on day four? Did they fuse back together at some time? Steve, well, then the scripture would say God separated some light from some darkness twice. Me, yeah, that's the problem. And see my comments above how this is not general light in day one and specific light or sunlight in day four. This is a definite articled specific daytime making light from a definite article darkness nighttime making on both days. On day one and day four, God separated the definite article daytime making light from the definite article nighttime making darkness. This leads to the problem of God's creative activity being undone sometime on days two and three, where he has to redo it again on day four. Steve, it could be general light and not the light on the earth. Me, not only are we then going to have the issue of numerous of my questions above about the nature of the light and the God-ordained role of the sun as the marker of days, but now also the, the hermeneutic would have to be inconsistent. Whereas the existence of morning and evening is taken to be a marker of literal solar days under the, the young earth creationist view, it now must itself be symbolic since there would be no morning and evening on the first three days. Even if the rotation was 24 hours, though the measure of time would now just be arbitrary, it would not be marked out by actual mornings and actual evenings. Those would then be symbolic. In fact, from the phenomenological vantage point on the face of the earth, an assumption nearly ubiquitous among young earth creationists, there would be absolutely no way to tell the passage of time or the rotation of the earth since there would be no luminaries in the sky to mark it. So now Steve and the young earth creationists would be stuck with morning and evening being both literal and symbolic in the same way at the same time in the same passage, a contradiction if there ever was one. Finally, me, how is it literal days if plants are created on day three, but we're told in Genesis 2 that no plants had grown because it had not yet rained and man was not yet created to work the earth? Could they not survive three days without water until man was created? Steve, this isn't a problem if Genesis 2 isn't a new creation account, but a zooming in. Me, I know that's typically the view of young earth creationists, and that's precisely the problem. It's a problem on that zooming in view because they would need ostensibly, they would then ostensibly be referring to the same timeline. But in one case, plants come before man, in another, man before plants. So which is it? Zooming in doesn't resolve the issues that come from a diachronic view. Steve, Kruger gives arguments in his paper about why Genesis 2.5 is talking about a specific type of plant. Me, I'm familiar with Kruger's work on, on this and would have my criticisms of his argument, pretty heavy criticisms actually. But for space, Steve does not list them, then I don't have the need to work with him on it. Simply saying that someone has given some kind of response somewhere, somewhere else 
cannot suffice as a response to my objection. Steve wraps up this section by reasserting that it is the plain and clear, that it is the quote, plain and clear meaning of the text if it's proper exegesis and not eisegesis we intend to accomplish, end quote. Yet from what I've seen, the issue is not a matter of exegesis and eisegesis. In fact, that seems far too myopic. For even if one of us is wrong, surely we're both trying to handle the text exegetically. In fact, he hasn't shown any way that I'm eisegeting the text since all of my observations and questions have been based on the context, language, grammar, and vocabulary of the text itself and nothing else. Nowhere have I appealed to anything like, quote, order of creation as agreed upon by the majority of scientists, end quote, like he claims. Okay, that's the last section where I have to do a back and forth like that. Uh, <clears throat> the next argument that I responded to in this uh, from Young Earth Creationists is number three, Genesis is literal history and not allegory. Now, for space and for our own sanity, I'm going to very quickly summarize Steve's comments and why they simply failed to address my comments. Steve agrees with me that there are numerous other creation accounts that are poetic in nature. He then basically asserts the same statement in the original and poses the same false dichotomy of either literal history or allegory. Here, he seems to miss my two main points of response in this section. First, my main observation is that there are poetic sections that are historical in nature. That is, they are historical poems, which do not tell the history in a straightforward diachronic manner. This is clear and obvious evidence that the disjunction between literal history or allegory is just a false dichotomy. There are more options than that. Steve concedes this, but then just says that just because that's the case doesn't mean that it's the case in Genesis, though he still confuses non-literal with allegory and thinks that it's allegory being infused with history in those cases, which is just false. Well, that's just, again, just trivially true that that's a false dichotomy. I would be dumb if that was my argument to say that just because there are other options that therefore that's true in Genesis. That's just a dumb argument that I'm not making. My point in saying this was that the young earth creationists cannot make the argument that because it's not allegory, that it is therefore literal history. Steve might not make that argument, but many young earth creationists do. Second, uh, my point was that young earth creationists cannot simply assert that Genesis 1 is a literal historical diachronic narrative. That is a positive claim that must be demonstrated by evidence. It cannot be assumed. There are features of historical narrative and poetic narrative and temple texts and such that establish the genre of literature that it is. Literal historical narrative is doubtful, even a clearly identifiable genre uh, in ancient Near Eastern literature. And we should think in terms of theological history or theological reportage. But I think with certain qualifications, I can grant the kind of genre he's getting at. Because it would be the extreme minority exception and not the rule, it cannot be treated like some kind of default genre for any narrative, like it's literary history unless proven otherwise. So Steve is right. It's different than the creation accounts of Psalm 104 and Job 38. But then again, 
Job 38 and Psalm 104 are also different genres from each other. One is poetry and one is epic. Both are poetic, but they are not the same genre. Ironically, if you'll remember, one of Steve's own expert witnesses that he appealed to in order to contradict the work of Walton was Oswald, who holds that Genesis 3 is a poetic narrative, very much like an epic or a cosmogonic myth minus the ancient Near Eastern mythical elements. He appeals to Steve Boyd, an, an Old Testament Hebraist, who for some reason is now trying his hand at radioisotopes, I don't know why, and his paper dealing with some kind of statistical analysis of genre. While the statement seems clear and scientific, giving a 99.999% probability with a 99.5% confidence level, no argument was given by Steve to support that. I'm somewhat familiar with this study and ones like it and find it methodologically wildly problematic on par with the statistical studies of Pauline lexicography used by critical scholars to excise half of the Pauline corpus from authenticity. It also smacks of the kind of secret decoders of hidden messages in the Bible. Statistical, but absurd nonetheless. My recommendation is that when someone comes trumpeting uh, flashing statistics for near certainty when it comes to things like literary genre, gird your loins because you're most likely being taken for a ride. I'd like to give Steve the benefit of the doubt that he, that he has read Boyd's paper the, the entitled Statistical Determination of Genre in Biblical Hebrew, Evidence for an Historical Reading of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. But the quote he gives is also from the abstract, and there's no actual argument given. For now, it sits as more simple assertion. No evidence has been given that Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is literal diachronic historical narrative. None. And yet Steve feels confident in writing, quote, Therefore, as if there's been an argument, Therefore, we recent creationists argue with good reason that Genesis 1 should be taken as straightforward natural account of real history. End quote. Why? Based on what evidence or argument? So far, it's just been that we should take it that way because that's the plain meaning and that's the plain meaning because we should take it that way. Okay. Objection number four that I was, or, or argument from Young Earth Creationist number four that I was responding to in the original article, that Jesus took Genesis literally, and so should we. Here, once again, Steve is just misconstruing my argument when he responds to it. I never said that Young Earth Creationist claims that Jesus takes every word of Genesis literally. I said the issue was that it treats Genesis as one genre in total. He then says that Jesus took Genesis naturally. Well, once again, like literal or plain and clear, when left undefined and unargued for, this kind of language just becomes a wax nose to mean they read it however I read it. And yes, Genesis does reference events that happen. I believe in a historical creation, a historical Adam and Eve, a historical fall, a flood, and so forth. None of that has any relevance to the genre that we're dealing with in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, or any other section of Genesis. I'm not sure how to respond to much of this section since Steve's comments 
with all due respect, because I again, I really like Steven. He's a smart guy. They're just kind of a nuh-uh. And that's really it. They add no arguments, no evidence, no exegesis. They don't really deal with the text. The problem is clear. Those like Lyle that want to appeal to Genesis language about from the beginning have a huge amount of work to do since those passages are demonstrably about the creation of humans specifically and not from the very moment of creation since humans were not created from the very moment of creation. There's simply no time reference to how long after the initial moment of creation it was until humans came along. It's just not in the text, and Jesus doesn't mention it. As I provided parallel usage of the exact same language that simply cannot mean that, it's hard for him to say it's the plain meaning. So it's incumbent on them to demonstrate it. Steve made no such effort, and so at this point, my criticism in the original argument seems relatively untouched. He tries to use a Disneyland example, which fails to simply fails simply because it's just not analogous. It's not that I'm trying to over-literalize the use of time. It's not no time is given. It would be more like if someone said, I've wanted to go to Disneyland since the day I was born. Unlike the four years ago example that he tries, this kind of hyperbole is clearly not meant to be taken literally, but at the same time, it does not give us a concrete time reference either for when the person started uh, for the uh, 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 either for when the person start started or when they started to wanting to go. So so too Jesus statement about from the beginning. Well, we know Adam and Eve and the murderous acts of Satan didn't happen at the beginning from the very moment of creation, but the language doesn't tell us when it did happen. This is a hyperbole, uh, idiomatic way of just speaking of the beginning of the biblical narrative when humans come into it. In the Bible, where does the creation of, of man as male and female and the fall happen? In the beginning. Steve's analogy just isn't analogous and thus doesn't address my argument. And he, does not, he doesn't do any exegetical work to bolster his claims. Steve's final argument is based on a kind of what's good for the goose kind of reasoning. He here anticipates what will be coming in his second article in response where he deals with my position on the relationship of Genesis 1 and Exodus 20, which I'm going to deal with in the next episode in part two of this one. And Exodus, uh, in Exodus 20, there I argue that whatever Moses or the author of Genesis 1 meant, he'll mean the same thing in Exodus 20. That's it. Steve wants to then say that whatever Jesus means by since the beginning in one context, he'll mean in the other. Well, there's two major problems with that. First, Exodus 1 is directly and expressly building on the meaning found in Genesis 1. That means Moses or whoever authored or redacted Exodus 20 would be self-consciously and purposefully using the same context uh, concept between the two passages. This is simply not the same in the incidental use of similar phrases in different contexts in different books. 
Jesus could very well use the idiom differently in different contexts. In fact, it would be rather easy to come up with numerous examples where this is precisely the case. So Steve is simply outside of his exegetical warrant to use that kind of argument here. Second, if Steve were familiar with my whole body of work and my comments and debates and such, then he would know that I absolutely think that the author of Genesis was using a calendar week as a paradigm for creation. I just don't have a problem with that. The issue is whether or not it is a concordist, diachronic, literal account of creation, or if it's a literary framework that's used to present a cosmogonic temple text that satirizes the gods of Egypt and the rest of the ancient Near East. The calendar days are, in my view, simply analogical concept hooks that the author uses to tell, to hang his story about the inauguration of God's temple on earth and supremacy over the other gods of the rest of the nations. When pressed into a literal historical diachronic narrative, it clearly and demonstrably falls apart, besides not even fitting with the ancient Near Eastern literary context anyways. But... I'm not a day-age theorist, or a gap theorist, or any form of old earth creationist. You aren't going to hear arguments from me that Yom on days one through six means some type of long period of time or something like that. It's just not my view about what the text is doing. So after all this effort, Steve has missed the big picture. Showing that Moses is using a calendar week is not going to do much to affect or change my reading of Genesis 1. He would need to address and defend the concordist, diachronic, and literalistic aspects of the young earth creationist and, and, and literal day view. And remember, I'm not here concerned with the age of the earth because in my view, that has absolutely nothing to do with what was taught in the text. Okay, next time in the next episode, I'm going to go into part two of Steve's objections to my article. Again, I'll, I'll put all the links in the link below. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please uh, feel free. Uh, you can email freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com. You can visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Leave comments uh, in the comment section below, right down here somewhere uh, on, on this YouTube video if you're watching on video. Uh, or always the best, just come on by the Free Thinker group page on Facebook. All right. Good night and God bless.